Welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we might get a bit gruesome. Jeremy Robert Johnson is a cult name in horror circles. He broke into the scene with his first novel, Skullcrack City, a book that's got more plot and theme than a lot of authors manage in their entire careers. In 2017, he gained serious horror kudos with his collection Entropy in Bloom, and now he's back with The Loop, the novel that promises to thrust him into the wider spotlight. The Loop is, um, well, we'll let Jeremy tell you what it is, because I'm not sure I'm quite up to the job. It, it takes a whole slew of genres, tones, sensibilities, and it throws into an industrial blender. You're left with a brutal yet funny grotesque yet quite sweet, pulpy yet very political story that touches on everything from 1950s teen movies to 80s paperback horror classics. You throw in some David Cronenberg body horror and you're only about 20% of the way to defining this visceral head melt of a book. On top of all that, The Loop also makes some very alarming claims about octopuses uh, and we will get into that in this conversation. So now... Don your lab coat, we're off to a small town in Oregon where class warfare is taking a very literal turn. Let's talk scared. Hi Jeremy and welcome to Talking Scared. Thanks for joining us and how are you doing? Uh, Doing quite well, glad to be here. Great, so you're in Oregon right now, Portland, Oregon, Is is that right? Yep. So at the time of recording, you're on high alert because of the wildfires that are tearing through the states. What's what's the situation where you are? Are you okay? Uh yeah, we're we're okay. We're uh swathed in smoke, certainly. It's uh, a yellow orange out right now at eleven in the morning. Um but nothing uh in our immediate proximity is on fire. We are just having the smoke drifting through, but we've had relatives visiting who've been evacuated and um you know, we're certainly certainly on alert. It would have to go through a lot of neighborhoods to reach Portland. So there's a pretty big tree break between us and, and the main wildfires. But uh, with the way the wind has been, uh, we are not taking anything for granted. And uh, we have some escape plans to make it out to the beach and stay in a friend's basement if we need to. So uh, we're, we're positioned and uh, watching. So you've got a bug out bag ready to go and stuff like that. Is that how it works? Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're we're painfully sanitised here in the UK. We don't have anything like this that comes along, really. We uh, we get a bit of snow at Christmas, and the, the entire nation shuts down. So it's quite hard to get our heads around, <laughs> yeah, the kind of situation you're in currently. But as long as you're okay, um, if anything changes during this interview, you know, just feel free to grab your bag and go. We'll um, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the listeners will understand. So to go from a local crisis to the global picture. You're here to talk about your new novel, The Loop, and it's actually eerily pertinent to our current health crisis, you know, as the book is about a strange medical catastrophe in a small town. Can you start us off with an introduction to the story? Yeah, The Loop is a uh, sci-fi horror thriller, cross-genre, coming-of-age romance splatterpunk book <laughs> That's, that says thriller on the spine, but it's a, it's a very cross-genre <laughs> book inspired by my love of, of 80s uh, sci-fi and thriller paperbacks and um, and a lot of John Carpenter movies. Uh, and it's the story of a young woman growing up in a small town, which happens to have a uh, biotech center 
which has an unfortunate outbreak and about all the chaos uh, and conspiracy and mass violence that ensues in the wake of uh, this outbreak. That's a very nicely ambiguous synopsis of a very unique (laughs) novel. Spoiler free. Nicely done. (laughs) Two questions spring to mind immediately. You've written a book about essentially a a localised outbreak of a, I'm not going to say disease, it's more complex than that, but a localised health crisis. Two questions. How do you feel about your book landing in the middle of a global pandemic? And my second question, are you sick of answering questions about the COVID relevance of your story? (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I feel like um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a weirdly prescient novel for being written two, three years ago uh, with a lot of stuff that's happening culturally and on um, technological fronts and with the, the virus. And it's just, um, that is what it is. I was worried initially that uh, people that are doom scrolling all day were saturated with worry about the virus and, and real consequence and that uh, people would have no interest in uh, experiencing something that was kind of commensurate, you know, although it's far pulpier and, and, and much crazier in the novel. But uh, I found with the early readers that people have actually found some kind of catharsis in it, which was interesting to me that, that because of the times we're in, it actually reached them to a greater degree and, and that people have taken a weird kind of comfort from it. You know, here's our situation, but, but at a level of uh, greater extremity. And so people are really able to empathize with the characters and rather, rather than it alienating people, I think, I think people have been very excited for it. And I think we've seen that uh, as well with uh, Paul Tremblay's survivor song, uh, which is even closer to what we're dealing with uh, as far as, you know, being a mass rabies outbreak and, and that kind of scale uh, that people have actually been almost excited to take, take on these stories at this time. I, I actually I interviewed Paul for the first episode of this um, and asked him the same question. Yeah, and it, it is just weird how many really prescient books are, are coming out. So you started writing this, you say, three years ago. Yeah, and at, at the time, uh, um, you know, there was certainly a level of, uh, I was playing off of more conspiracy theory elements and wanting to write my first kind of um, techno thriller. You know, as a, as a child, I was a paperback rack enthusiast and uh, Michael Crichton always had his stuff positioned right next to the horror titles. And so it was my first go at uh, uh, trying to, trying to do some of what I loved in, in those kind of uh, Robin Cook or Michael Crichton, those early techno thrillers. So you mentioned the conspiracy theory element of it, that in a way is every bit as prescient as the health side, because what we've seen with, you know, the, the crazy conspiracy theories around COVID-19, it's just, it's revealed how deep that, way of thinking goes into western thought the novel riffs on like every aspect of conspiracy culture so you've got a central plot that is about misinformation and then you actually all actually build in segments that are told via a kind of radio shock jock and it's really well done it's built into the texture of the novel but i wondered what your attitude was are you kind of satirizing conspiracy theories or are you telling us to wake up and kind of dig out our tinfoil hats it's it's uh it's funny because I feel a bit of both ways about it, and so there is definitely an element of satire. Uh, I mean, I, I heard a broadcast on NPR years ago where somebody said um, uncertainty is the oxygen that allows conspiracy to burn like a wildfire, and so uh, playing with that uncertainty and seeing how how broadly. Uh, American uncertainty and disinformation and filter bubbles have allowed those those fires to bloom, you know, and then the ideological 
drives and political drives behind that disinformation. Um, it's so deeply toxic and it's, it's so terrifying to watch, you know, this cultural abandonment of the idea of any expertise and the idea that the truth is now a niche product, you know, that your, that your computer sends to you based on your market interests. I am terrified by it at the same time. When I was researching a prior novel, uh, Skullcrack City, I did a lot of research about actual um, criminal American conspiracies, uh, especially collusion between American political parties and um, pharmacology companies in experimenting on living human beings, unbeknownst to them, like, you know, actual broad-based conspiracies that harmed populations of people for decades. And so I'm, I'm of two minds about it. There absolutely are forces at work which are... Um, taking advantage of us to gain power and money and they're using disinformation to uh, to their advantage. And at the same time, the disinformation itself has been weaponized too. Yeah, I definitely tried to address both layers of that. I, I think um, being wary, but also um, checking sources is kind of where I land, trying to find those core truths that are out there and um, not falling for stuff, which simply, you know, falls into confirmation bias is incredibly important, but also looking at the economic interests of people you choose to trust uh, too. I'm uh, I'm heavily conflicted about it, and I, I think that comes through in the work. And of course, talking about real life conspiracies, we're actually recording this on the day where it came out that Trump, you know, admitted downplaying his knowledge of the severity of COVID nineteen. So at this stage, kind of all bets are off, and, and we come back around to the prescience yes. of your novel again. So yeah, we'll see how that plays out in the. In the weeks in between recording and this going live, who knows where we'll be by the time this hits people's ears. It's a, it's a wild ride. Yeah, you, you, you literally cannot predict <laughs> what is coming next at this point. I know. And over, oh, not to get too political, but in Britain, we've got our, you know, we've got people pulling out of trade agreements um, telling me I can go to work but can't see my family. And it's just getting crazy. But I don't want to go down that road. I always kind of stray too close to the political and it's, it's really, you know, let's... <laughs> To, to an extent, I want to give people a break from the mire that is the current political landscape. That said, your novel is inextricable from the political. I know that you are you have a background in activism and grassroots community work yourself, and I want to ask you about that in a, in a little bit. But in this novel, obviously, you 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 set it largely within the social structure of a high school and a small town, but it is it's largely deals with young people and you use mm-hmm. those young people as a way in my eyes to present a class system oh ab- a- absolutely one of the one of the things i wanted to um to do was almost um to do an update uh to throw my love for the outsiders in there too you know and and the greasers versus the socias and and uh, uh that was a book that resonated with oh, me can I, can I just stop you just just explain those terms for my british listeners Oh, okay. So in S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders, there are uh, people divided by their socioeconomic strata, and um, the greasers are the uh, people with less money, and the socias are the uh, rich kids up on the hill. Their conflagrations lead to uh, all kinds of violence in the novel, and uh, it's also a, a kind of coming-of-age thing. Yeah, this is, this is in, uh, in part tribute to that, just because it's also... Um, a little bit of me exercising my youth growing up kind of on the other side of the tracks in a, a town that's very socioeconomically divided, uh, that has a lot of wealth, but also has a lot of poor folks 
that don't engage in any of the things the town is known for. You know, I, I grew up in a town called Bend that has a, a world famous uh, ski mountain, Mount Bachelor, and is known as kind of the worldwide hub of the microbrewery scene and, and uh, has tons of tourism and uh, some high income jobs. And then a lot of folks that are just getting by out on the borders of the city. So, so in part, it was uh, the, the way the outsiders resonated with my own childhood and wanting to tell that kind of story. And then also very much just thinking about um, commodification of human beings and the othering of human beings that's happening right now and, and trying to fit that into how people, how people in power divide us. I think in in the UK, we often think of America as a classless society, so, uh, certainly in contrast to us, where for us, the class system is is everything. I mean, I once, uh, we tend to think of America as a, a, a nation that is structured along, along racial divides rather than class divides. But of course, those two things, you know, definitely more than overlap. Um, I once heard yep. a comedian say that in America, you have racism which is your way of hating people who look different to you. Whereas in Britain, we have the class system, which is our way of hating people who look like us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that kind of, kind of holds true. But in, in your novel, it's really interesting that two of your main protagonists are immigrants. And I, I yeah. didn't imagine that that was a, an accident. I imagine that was definitely a kind of topical point you were making. No, it was absolutely... Uh topical point. It was, I guess, growing up, there was a kind of confluence in the town um, between folks who didn't have much money and uh, people who were just different, behaviorally different. Um, anybody with, you know, people of color, people from other countries. Uh, there was there was definitely a kind of almost um, culturally an us versus them scenario. To me, it was just mirroring my experience with that of okay, these are these are the folks who, whether it's it's uh, race or you know the hidden caste system within race or uh, the classist divide, it definitely still was rich white kids on top, and so it was my attempt to kind of uh, kind of show that, and that felt much more um, contemporary, just with what we're dealing with now and 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 the ways in which we desperately. Are, are forced to other each other, to uh, forced to divide and argue. Um, it seemed at, at the core of the, like you said, at the core of the American division, race has been deeply central to that. And so it felt important to um, include that. I just really like the way that, you, I mean, you make, you make the, you know, the rich white kids from up the hill really hateful in this book. And there is a, there's a, there's a real deep satisfaction when some of them get their comeuppance. And you make your underdog characters many of whom are either poor or culturally other you make them really easy to root for it feels like the novel is a bit of a call to arms of sorts and there's one passage that really struck me which is when lucy who is your main protagonist says to bucket like kind of a secondary protagonist she says to him you don't have to calm down that would be insane i think we've been calm too long we're going to fight this. We're going to show these motherfuckers. And it, it felt like she is a, <laughs> yeah. she's a, a female immigrant from the lower class um, echelons. And it just felt like you'd, you'd basically found a way to roll up all of the pressing issues that are kicking off at the moment into, into one call to arms. It was a real kind of, kind of fist pump moment. I know you have an activist background. 
And I wonder, do when you're writing horror, do you feel the anger coming through it in your fiction? Or is it a kind of stop valve release? No, I, I feel it pretty pretty intensely throughout. I mean, I think it's a lot of the neuroses that drives me to write, and I just happen to write predominantly in horror. And so uh, metaphor and fiction is is how I deal with those anxieties. Um, so no, it's it's right on the surface. And I'm not, I've never been accused of being a, a subtle writer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, that that's right at the moment where, where she literally also takes up arms, you know, she, she finds a, finds that wrench on the floor of the, the truck and, and has had her first conflict. And so it is, it is that kind of a, absolutely that kind of moment, you know, the third act of the book is, is just called class warfare. So it's not, it's, I wouldn't call it a polemic, but it's not a it's not a subtle novel either. Uh, it definitely it was an outlet for a lot of my my angers and frustrations, and um, at that confusion over in a in an authoritarian situation or a situation where the power uh, divide is so great, what solutions are available to us other than violence? You know, isn't that another cruelty that that we would be forced into violence when ideologically it's it's something that we're against? And so it, it's also about that internal conflict that I feel with situations that, that people are placed in trying to survive and trying to make things better. Do you want to elaborate before I go any further? I keep referencing this. Uh, you, you are actually involved in various charities and organizations in the Portland area. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I've tried to be engaged as much as I can. It's, it's obviously uh, more of a challenge during the, during the pandemic. You know, you have to find different lanes in which you can uh, function. Yeah, we've tried to uh, work with um, different like mental health care charities and um, with the local homeless issue, you know, uh, the my first month of royalties and then uh, my royalties every holiday season from a book called In the River have gone to Portland Homeless Family Solutions here and just, you know, trying to turn over these books that represent my ideology into uh, real action. I think is important and uh, it gives me more of a sense of purpose with my fiction outside of, you know, the capitalist drives or the initial creation of the art in the first place. And then more recently I've done book auctions to uh, try and aid bail funds in Minnesota. And also here, because obviously Portland um, has become embroiled in a kind of longstanding conflict. And there's a lot of needs for people, you know, friends of mine who are down there on the front lines every day uh, in the, in the conflict who may need legal aid because there's certainly a lot of drive to arrest predominantly innocent protesters. And, and I think that's a uh, quite troubling. It's quite a cool thing to be able to benignly weaponize your art. You know, that, that is a, that is a cool thing that you can make a human difference by writing stories. Yeah. That's tip of the hat to that one. Really. I mean, talking about Portland, the only thing I saw from Portland is this, these, terrifying unmarked cars with you know, kind of unbranded military leaping out and, and arresting people. I mean, what did anyone get to the bottom of that? What happened? Cause that was sent on Portland, right? There's, there's still conflict over the nature of, of those arrests and who was held. And, and um, some of those folks had to sign off on waivers saying they would never participate in any kind of protesting in the future. It was definitely, you know, a very authoritarian attempt to quell any dissent, you know, it was, it was, you know, this, uh, intentional show of force to attempt to scare everybody back into their holes, but it, it galvanized the whole city to a degree. It was, it was, uh, interesting that the moment that footage hit the internet, you know, there were 
there were additional people on the front lines the next night. And then, you know, it grew exponentially across the next couple of nights. So it was, it was a miscalculation for sure. You mentioned violence before. It's, you know, making a clear division here between the, the horrible violence happening on the streets near you at the moment and, and the kind of fun violence in your book. You, you do write <laughs> violence. <laughs> I want to make that clear. Um, you write yeah. violence and gore with a real kind of flair and almost like a real sense of glee. Is it something you do you look forward to writing those scenes? Do you sit, sit down and think, oh, good, I get to tear some flesh today? You know what? On this book, I did. I, I came to this book with very specific intent. You know, there's there's prior works where I've absolutely had the violence uh, there. In a, tried to portray it as honestly and unpleasantly as possible, the way violence feels in real life. With this one, I was kind of taking a, taking notes from um, you know early books by Skip Inspector and Joe Lansdale and uh, Poppy Z. Bright and definitely uh, David Scow and the early Splatterpunks. Um, mm-hmm. where there was a kind of uh, a gleeful over the top approach to the violence. And that's, that's done with great intent here uh, it, to add more of a, a thriller element uh, to add a kind of dark sense of humor to it and to keep it pulpy and keep it moving fast. But I, you know, I try to add moments within, you know, the narrator's voice within, within Lucy and uh, later Brewer where they are reflecting on the, the PTSD and the fallout from the violence you know, to kind of contrast with the um, almost entertainment entertainment value, the exploitation aspect of the violence early in the book. I try to show that there is fallout and, and the way it wears on people mentally. But no, it's it's um, it's definitely, like I said, a, a kind of an attempt to do a lot of what Michael Crichton did, a lot of what the Splatterpunks did to to merge those things into something that I hope people will read in, you know, in six hours straight, just sit down and, and devour. And so there is a different nature to the way I write violence in the loop than I've done in the past, for certain. You mentioned the pace of reading, and it, it does really feel like a book to be sort of powered through. It, it reminds me very much of a kind of 1950s B-movie, and I mean that in the best possible way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm glad that you thought, thought that was a compliment. Um, the film I kept thinking of all the way through is um, The Blob, with those yeah. kind of with the kids running around fighting this otherworldly nasty menace. It, I was going to say, does that strike a chord with you? But it seems like it already has. Is that is that a thing you you went for purposefully? Ab- absolutely. I, you know, um, like I said, The Outsiders, which is set you know kind of in that same era, uh, was a major influence. Yeah, the the Blob and uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, all all the versions um, are clear touch points here, and so that that vibe. You know that, like I said, there's there's a pulp aspect too, which is I think you know your 50s and 60s kind of sci-fi thrillers. It's it's very much an ode to that too. You know, on top of um, the other weird aspect that that I don't know if always comes through is is I have a deep love of of um, kids driving around talking movies like Days to Confused or um, American Graffiti, and so I had this weird sub desire to to insert an element of that, especially in the first third of it, uh, and just you know saying to myself, what would happen if uh, Days of Confused suddenly turned into a David Cronenberg film. Well, that was it's funny you should say that because one, my next question was how much was David Cronenberg an inspiration? And also when I uh, when I was reading it, the scene kind of like the, the, the really important scene early on where they go to the party in the cave. As I was reading that, it made me think this is just like the party in Days and Confused. So yeah. you've got that across very well. <laughs> oh, excellent. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. Um, 
that was that was the idea is just getting to know these kids um you know for for me it's actually a slow burn start it's about you're about 50% through the book before full chaos breaks out obviously things happen before then but that was a uh, an important part of it was just you know how how do we manage to care about these characters before the it goes wild before the book completely goes wild and i thought you know um connecting with them by having them drive around and get to know each other in the first place and get to know them emotionally and have them relate would be key. Yeah, that was that was kind of the main driver there. And then the Cronenberg aspect obviously comes in hot and heavy once the uh, once the infection begins. It goes pretty full Cronenberg. I, I originally pitched it to my agent as Days to Confuse meets Shivers, but since uh, Shivers is not a great uh, commercial touch point, we didn't get to use that tagline. You're talking to a podcast about horror stuff, so trust me, most people who listen to this will have, will have seen Shivers. They'll know where you're coming from. That that's fine. We've probably made it sound like quite an odd book because we've gone from a conversation about politics and class systems and race and misinformation, all these really heady, heavy subjects. And now we're talking about splatterpunk and the blob and 1950s teen movies. We, we, we must have made it sound like quite a schizophrenic novel. And in a way, I suppose it is quite a schizophrenic novel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, did that happen yeah. organically? Or was that something that you thought, this is the way I'm going to tell this story for a reason? No, I um, I intended for it to be more organic. Uh, I really wanted to come to this one. Uh, my prior novel, Skullcrack City, was deeply plot-driven and deeply idea-driven. And that's a thing, you know, that, um, that Cronenberg, a lot of his early work had the same criticisms for. You know, the characters are merely ciphers for the idea, propelling the idea and the set pieces forward. And that's something I, I got a lot of with Skullcrack. And so the idea here was to center this novel around Lucy and her emotional experience of the world and to still talk about, you know, corporate control and, and all these other things. It just, uh, I guess, is an inherent way I function that my influences and drives are disparate enough that these books do just become a hodgepodge. And hopefully, you know, I, I try not to overcorrect anything and let let those influences be present and let my mistakes be what give the books their idiosyncrasies and personality. So no, it feels that way at times. There's, there's some very strong tonal shifts, you know, sometimes the audience is, is there for the early portion of one of my books. And then uh, I'll take a massive uh, right turn and lose some folks. And then other folks are perfectly along for the ride. So it's, it's a little bit of a risk, but I feel it's for me, the most interesting way to uh, create the work is to let all those influences just be out there. And, um, let the let the end product kind of be that that amassing of all these different touch points. So you you mentioned that obviously we've talked about Cronenberg and you've mentioned Stranger Things and you mentioned Carpenter and we've talked about you know numerous other inspirations already. When you read the novel, the, it's it's emblazoned with the phrase Stranger Things um, on the marketing blurb, on various synopses I've seen, and it's about young kids which yeah. I went into it fully expecting this to be a kind of a young adult YA novel. And it really isn't. Or at least I would say <laughs> it, it isn't in terms of the extremity of the horror. I think that the, the tonal framework and the issues at play are completely YA because YA is doing a lot of the most interesting stuff in terms of yeah. political allegory and all that kind of stuff. So all that's there, but then you really dial up the horror. Was that something that you then found hard to market? Was it a misperception that you courted? What was the situation there? Uh, it's it's interesting. That's um, 
it is something we struggled with. Any, it feels like anytime you have a teen protagonist and you have those elements like a love interest or a coming of age story, or like you said, the, you know, the political allegory, uh, there's a YA element. And originally when I started writing the title, my agent had actually come to me and said, do you think you could work within the constraints of YA? She was having some fantastic success with YA books and uh, she knew that I, I like to jump genres. That's interesting to me to experiment with different forms. Um, and so I said, yeah, so can you send me one you've sold recently? And I'm going to go back through and read a number of YA novels and kind of pull from those and, and take a look at how they function and what makes them tick and, and really try to see if I can do that. This was prior to my novel Skullcrack City taking off and becoming this weirdly kind of commercial juggernaut. It, it uh, excelled far beyond what we had expected from it. You know, we thought Skullcrack City was going to be a very divisive novel and it ended up um, taking off and being kind of a, uh, what would technically be a bestseller for me. So at that point, we got enough interest from other agents saying, pointing at that and saying, we want more of that, that my agent wrote to me and said, um, you know what, what, before you start this novel, just do whatever you've been doing. And she's like, you have created a lane for yourself to uh, create the kind of work you want to create. Now there's there's market interest in uh, your kind of brand of craziness. And so when I came to the page uh, at the end of the day for The Loop, I had those YA influences on deck and those uh, those ideas there. And But I realized I could just write it in in the way that I would naturally write it uh, because I was wanting to do something that, that had a kind of splatterpunk take. And I, I do think early splatterpunk uh, was very uh, different from extreme horror and, and had these strong political undercurrents to them. And so I thought it would be an interesting tool to use, especially within a thriller setting. So it, it did all kind of coalesce into transforming from uh, YA origins to being a book with YA elements that uh, is very much over the top in its extremity of, of violence um, and in some of its scenes. And we've, we've noticed that with uh, YA readerships and science fiction readerships, when they come to the novel, and review it, they, they have been warning each other about how violent it is and about how dark it becomes. And so, um, I don't know, book, book list gave it a YA recommendation. And, and certainly when I was a kid, it's, it's the type of book I would have loved. It's inspired by the books I loved when I was a kid. So hopefully we can reach a readership. There are, there are people that come to it that want it to be actually stranger things, little kids on bikes fighting a supernatural force, and, and they get a little bit mad when it's not that. But Stranger Things is what uh, publishers are slapping on almost all books right now. So it's just, that's just the market, you know, driving that that term, I guess. See, I always think with Stranger Things, th they think they want that. I and mean, what they really want is it. They want Stephen yeah. King's it. They, they just <laughs> don't know that's what they want, you know. Right, like, right. I want to say to all these 14-year-old kids who love Stranger Things, go and read it and watch The Goonies and you'll understand what this is about. But this is me showing yes. my kind of Gen X credentials. Well, it, it's true. I mean, read that, read Boy's Life, read uh, Dan Simmons' Summer of Night. There's there's a lot of books uh, that Stranger Things, you know, books and films that it pulls from that ring a little truer and have a little less corny stuff in it. So I, I agree, but I'm also from that generation. <laughs> We're the, the, the increasingly grumpy middle-aged men. Are we the old guys now? <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, I think we're the old guys. That's the problem. This is what's oh, starting God. to dawn on me. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer finger on the pulse of, of um, cultural life anymore. I, my references are right. massively outdated. I'm the guy who you <laughs> once tried to, tried to teach a seminar to a load of 18-year-old students thinking I was cool by using 
Eminem to teach meter. And then it was oh. brought to my attention that Eminem, Eminem was already 15 years out of date. And I'm like, oh, I've got nothing left to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you tried, though. You tried in earnest. That's what's important. I, I tried. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I tried. It's, yeah. Um, there is one section in the middle of this book that's one of the most amazing pieces of body horror I've, I've ever read. It's the stuff that happens to Marisol. Often when I talk about specific moments, I will read an excerpt. I'm not going to read an excerpt from that because I, th- I don't think I can do it justice. And I think it will better serve the appeal by saying to people, you need to go away and read this because you won't believe how grotesque it is. When you're writing that stuff, how do you know when it's working? How do you know when something is hitting the cringe spot? Is it based upon stuff that bothers you or is it something else? It's a, uh, it's 100% based on whether, um, whether I feel hesitant to type it. It's, it's based on my own obsessions and things that would disturb me. And, um, you know, a lot of my early fiction was body horror or parasite based as, as a lot of the primary imagery. And so I think that comes through in, in that scene and yeah, there's, there's a couple sequences right in the middle there, you know, also, uh, just, just a moment involving Steve finding something out about his family at the same time, things are happening with Marisol at the same time, folks are coming towards, uh, you know, the, the building where they're all stationed felt it was thrilling to me to write. It was one of those, uh, mornings where I woke up in a little camp trailer and was ready to go because I knew that sequence to me was, was exciting to craft. And, and if there's ever a moment where I'm excited to put it on the page, I know that's going to resonate with a certain number of, you know, other weird people on the other line, you know, and you don't always feel that on the, on the days when you, when you come to write. So there's times where you get excited and you kind of, you can feel this is going to reach people. This is going to be effective. And there, well, and then there's times where you feel that way and it's not true, which is, (laughs) and there's other times where you feel like you're producing absolutely mediocre work and and sometimes those sections or stories become people's absolute favorites. It's it's a tough thing to gauge, but yeah, there's that middle section uh, where it really ramps up into high gear in the loop was exciting to me, and and it's uh, rewarding to hear you say that. I, I think it uh, it's it's all out from that moment in the book, you know. Yeah, I was kind of blown away by that. I mean, as you say, that is the epicenter of the novel, and it and it and it you know it it accelerates from there. But just that that one scene, it felt like the horror of the exorcist and the horror of the chestburster bit from alien rolled into one scene and then thrown at my face. Yeah. Yeah. Those, um, in, in fact, it's funny you mentioned that I, when I was uh, doing Marisol's dialogue, I, I specifically attempted to avoid having it sound like Pazuzu. You know, I was like, it can't be too stentorian. It can't be too, the, these messages that are coming through her can't be too much of that too much of a recall, you know? And I was also thinking a lot of um, like the thing, uh, the testing sequences in the thing. And, you know, what if that happened while they were in the middle of assault on precinct 13, you know, how, how much could, could that ramp up? Um, like I said, it's a highly pulp and film influenced uh, uh, piece of work, but yeah, trying to, trying to kind of merge all those elements into one thing that has this, you know, kind of singular moment before it shifts to the next, next scene. So um yeah, that was a, a fun section to write. And, and I think it, um, when people talk about how grotesque the book becomes, I, I think that's the first scene they're talking about. <laughs> but when you're writing that stuff, which is so focused on the body and, and the, the novel is focused upon kind of speculative medicine, it, it reads as pretty well researched. Is there any kind of accuracy to what 
to the speculative nature of the of the story? Is there something that you know about that, that you know is out there that's being played with that we should all be scared of, or is it just entirely created? No, I. Uh, it, it's been a long-standing practice of mine. It's partly procrastination, and it's partly because I find these things fascinating. You know, to me, I, I don't want to come to the page unless I find the subject matter totally fascinating. So, no, I. Um, I've taken pictures before that show the reams of handwritten research that go into uh, in my last two novels. And, you know, I had, a, I had a whole floor covered with stuff for the loop. Not everything makes it in, but as far as, um, you know, uh, bio, bio implants and biofeedback devices and the approval process for that and uh, what it takes to get the, uh, the body to absorb a device you know, these kind of neural implants, you know, uh, Elon Musk was talking about that a couple of weeks ago. And it's definitely something that has been on the developmental strand forever, especially with in people talking about posthumanism and people talking about building the, the quote, perfect animal by, you know, if we could only get the cartilage of this and the visual acuity of this merged into a human being, we could, we could have all these abilities. And so body modification, parasitism, um, you know, that kind of development. Also, um, there's a, there's an animal that I heavily researched for the novel. Uh, they, they, there's discoveries about that animal later in the book. So no, I, I always feel like if your fascination for an idea is on the page, others will find themselves fascinated. For me, the, you know, the Benchley and Crichton thrillers, the best moments of those were the speculative research. More, you know, the, the plot drove it along and kept it fast, but the moments I absolutely adored were the things where they were saying, what if, or here's something fascinating about a hippopotamus in Africa, you know, it kills the most people. Those, those are the moments that actually blew my mind. And so I've tried to uh, always work that kind of stuff into my, my fiction and hope my weird fascinations resonate with other people. Well, by quoting the thing about the, the, the weird facts about the hippo, though, you've reminded me of the, of the part of the book that jumps off the page to me. Now, this will make very little sense to anyone who hasn't read the book, but it will certainly make people intrigued. Do you think the octopus comes from space? Yeah, <laughs> I do. I do. To me, it's uh, because of the, the RNA and DNA sequencing abilities, um, because of it not matching up to any other organic material on Earth. Um, you know, if we if we think about different forms of the genesis and development of creatures and the introductions of cells or spores or anything else that you know went through a prokaryotic or eukaryotic stage um you know in early evolution i don't know i can i can picture something coming to earth that had had those cells and then evolved and developed and you know uh developed concurrently to us and i don't think that's even a um i don't think that's an insane idea you know it'd be easy to make a meme of me going you know octopi <laughs> with the the crazy aliens guy but it feels that way a little bit I didn't mean to imply it was a crazy idea, but you, you, you mentioned it in passing in the story. And I was like, hang on a minute, what? And then I read about this kind of established theory that the octopus is, mm-hmm. has alien roots. Not in case yeah. it's like little green men, but it may have, the, the, the cellular matter may have arrived at some previous point. But you're telling right. me it's got different DNA. I didn't know that. Yeah, the um, the DNA to date does not match up. Does It doesn't have deep similarities to the sequencing of any other organic creatures on earth. There's, there's more difference than there is similarity almost with, with them. And then their, their ability to form those, those tiny cities, their puzzle solving ability there. There's just, they're just a utterly fascinating creature. Um, and so they made good grist for, for the novel too, you know? 
Sorry to sidetrack the interview entirely there, but I had to ask because... No, I, I love talking about it. <laughs> you get me going on sharks or parasites or, or uh, interesting biological facts. That's that's my favorite stuff. So, oh, someone needs to be someone needs to be checking the octopuses. I want to know what they're up to. I don't trust them. This is, yeah, okay. <laughs> Suddenly unnerved. Like it's like that thing that you know the fear that you're never more than five feet from a rat. Like, okay, but where are the octopuses? <laughs> so, to, to change tack for a moment and just to kind of contextualize your work more generally. You've often been considered one of the forefathers, if that isn't too offensive a term for someone as young as yourself. Um, you've been placed in the bizarro genre. Now, oh, for sure. those of us who may not be familiar, can you explain what bizarro is in the in general terms? Absolutely. Um, bizarro was kind of a, an early... Um offshoot at the same time new weird was developing and there were you know people were calling a lot of speculative stuff like slipstream it was it was from a you know a period at the early turn of the century where people were trying to define weird fiction uh different forms of weird fiction and bizarro was kind of this merged scene that a bunch of independent publishers uh eraserhead press raw dog screaming press afterbirth they realized that we were hanging out at sci-fi fantasy um, horror conventions and on websites. Um, but we kind of felt like the work we were producing was, um, its own thing, you know, uh, like cyberpunk, like splatterpunk, these different things where it felt like it was, had the elements of a movement and elements of its own kind of literary identity in that Bizarro, um, tended to have a lot of metafiction, have a lot of absurdism, have a lot of, um, humor. Um, there's a lot of edgelord, you know, kind of proto-shock stuff, a lot of experimental text. There was just such a such a bizarre mix that they tried to coin a term. And so these publishers decided uh bizarro is the term. And let's let's start putting that on all of our books and have all our authors use that terminology and see what happens. And so yeah, I was um already working with I had a collection with Eraserhead Press at that time that was, you know, multi-genre. There's literary stuff in there, science fiction, fantasy, outright weird stuff this book, Angel Dust Apocalypse. And so that was considered a kind of proto-Bizarro book before the term was coined. And then it just also happened that was um, the people that took me in when I moved to Portland uh, were some of the folks, uh, this guy, Carlton Mellick III, that's probably seen as the the absolute leader of the form as far as number of books produced and, and outlandishness, was the first person to call me up to grab a drink when I moved to Portland. And so that was the crew I was running with. And they were teaching me a lot about independent publishing. And I said, sure, let's let's try it out. I haven't used it in a couple of years just because it hasn't always meshed with the fiction I'm producing. Uh, but if I make something that's outright bizarro, I would definitely call it that. You know, if, if there's something, uh, I'd say Skullcrack City was the last work of mine that was directly bizarro. That was so outlandish and cross genre and over the top that it kind of fit that tag. It's been interesting because it was for the first five years, it was pretty much, you know, something that we were pushing, but something that had a lot of pushback, just like any new, new scene. And then it, it developed its own life and, and, uh, has been going through the life cycles of any fiction scene, you know, it's ups and downs. Yeah. Now, now, uh, if you, if you ask New York, now I'm a thriller writer, which is funny, but <laughs> yeah, I started out as a horror writer. Then I was writing bizarro fiction. Uh, then I was writing horror again and now, now I'm doing thrillers. So I just, I, I always like what Joe Lansdale said about his stuff. You know, he was branded as a splatterpunk, but he came to it and said, I write Joe R. Lansdale books. And, and that's what I want. That's what I want to try to do with my work is, is be, 
a singular voice, you know, whether I'm doing a Western or, you know, experimental fiction or a crime thriller, uh, that readers can trust me when they come to the page, they're going to, they're going to get something they want. Um, and so, so my end goal is just to be a name people can trust more than, more than a genre, you know, what, what's next for you? That is a fantastic question. Um, what's weird is, is I find myself obsessed with still talking about, you know, Skullcrack City did a lot of this. The Loop does a lot of this. Talking about the commodification of human beings within a capitalist structure. It seems to me, uh, and, and the way it detaches us from nature and the way it detaches us from each other, it's the, it's the thing each day that I wake up and see and feel and uh, kind of fear in my bones the most. And so I've, I've got this weird drive to do another kind of, um, you know, whether supernatural or whether with horror elements, a, a kind of thriller about uh, the ways in which we use economic warfare to destabilize other countries, or even at this point, our own, in order to use debt as an instrument of war. Um, you know, the, the ways in which the elite and the ultra rich are trying to kind of reshape things into this, this feudal system almost and finding a way to communicate that, that instead of it being an essay in Adbusters or some kind of political diatribe for me still is something that appeals to people and something that people will enjoy reading. But, but that's the thing that's been echoing around in my head the most is, is almost like an espionage thriller based on economic destabilization, which I know it's like, yeah, doesn't, I, but with monsters, you know. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds great. I mean, you, you've really hit a rich vein in in taking these, you know, pressing political matters and making them digestible and also disgusting. So I just look forward to everything <laughs> yeah. right next. Yeah, that's great. If you've got a little time, I'd like to run my rapid fire four questions past you, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Question one. What was your gateway to horror? The novel Jaws. My dad had it on his book stand, uh, the theatrical tie-in paperback. One day I flipped it over and I saw the cover and I jumped back. I, I physically jumped back from the book. Uh, I had not seen the cover art for Jaws before, the uh, theater, theatrical poster. And I ran out of the room and then I slowly crept back in and I looked at it again and I flipped it over. And uh, gradually, you know, I approached it slowly every couple of days and developed a total fascination with it. And prior to reading the novel, I, I saw a poster in the video store and I asked my parents if I could see that movie. And so for my fifth birthday, uh, I, I remember this very vividly. I'm, they, they told me to go back and play with my sister. It's, uh, you know, 1982. So I'm jumping up and down on a waterbed with a Paisley print comforter uh, uh, with my sister. And they've got their Dolby stereo system turned up out in the living room. And I hear, da 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 and I run out and I realize, oh my gosh, they're going to let me watch Jaws because everybody had told me that's the song from Jaws. It's this haunting, you know, we would, we would say it to each other in pools to scare each other, uh, even though I'd never seen the film, which was funny. Um, that's how iconic that music is. And then, of course, just, just watching that film through my fingers for the first time at the, at the age of five, put the love of uh, horror and thrillers into me for a lifetime. I mean, from there, it was, it was nonstop. The film of Jaws, then reading the novel, which I was a, a little let down by, but still fascinated by, and then um, uh, begging my mom to buy me Stephen King's Cycle of the Werewolf, 
at a, a Payless store, got that, and then uh, became basically a King constant reader at the age of seven. You know, having it in my backpack in the fourth grade was a, a glorious uh, summer. And then, you know, going up through the 80s paperback horror boom uh, pretty much entrenched me in my love of, of horror forever, you know? Yeah, that all rings very true to me. Also, Paul, Paul Tremblay told me that um, Jaws gave him nightmares for years and years and years. It scared him more than any other film. So you're in good company. Question two. If you could recommend one book to the people listening to this podcast, what would it be and why? I've, I've had the same one for three years now. Nothing has quite knocked it out of its top spot. It's uh, Brian Evanson's A Collapse of Horses, uh, which is weird to have a, a collection in that top spot. But again, I, I rate things based on the pure metrics of, of how they make me feel. And I have not been that psychologically disturbed by a work of fiction um, since, uh, as far as you know, contemporary stuff. As a throwback, I, my, my answer used to be Last Exit to Brooklyn. Um, but yeah, I read a collapse of horses in, in one sitting and, uh, spent two days in a, in a fugue state almost, uh, just completely unnerved, uh, completely unsettled, questioning the fabric of reality around me and my perception, um, which is, is something he does. I don't think there's a writer that employs the word maybe any better than Brian Evanson, the, the level of uncertainty that he drives through his work and the way he makes even stories I don't necessarily enjoy completely haunting. I, I fondly remember even stories of his that I did not enjoy the process of reading and the ones that I love, I, I love deeply. So A Collapse of Horses, I think, is the last thing that, that just completely changed my perspective of what a work of fiction could do to my brain. Um, and, and it's something I, I sought to emulate. I wrote a novella called A Sleep of Judges in which I basically was just trying to to test out the tools of, of what he did in his work. And, and I don't know if I pulled that off, but people said it was the scariest thing I'd done. So, so, you know, hopefully just glancing towards Evanson's work may, may have made me a better or scarier writer, but definitely a collapse of horses. Okay. I haven't read that one. I need to check that out. I've heard of it peripherally, but I haven't, I'm not really aware of it. So I need to, um, need to look into that one urgently by the sound of things. Question three. What piece of advice would you give to a fledgling horror novelist? Okay, well, I used to do the old chestnut, which was um, read widely and write every day, you know, um, which is mm -hmm. kind of, it's sensible. It's, <laughs> it's sensible advice. But more so than that, now, it, when I'm talking to people who are getting started, it, I would say, look to your fascinations. And, um, and even more than that, uh, tell the truth. So the, the more, the, the more for me that I've been able to bring the truth to the page, even, even when it is wildly uncomfortable for me, and I know it will be uncomfortable for readers, uh, those moments where I'm, I'm sweating and I'm thinking to myself, you know, should I put this on paper? Um, I find later, those are the things that resonate and connect with other human beings. And, and those are the things that help people on the other side of it, find recognition and feel less alone and, and connect to your work at a stronger emotional level, more so than just, oh, I enjoyed this, or, oh, it was escapist fun. Certainly pursue those things, but put truths that you are afraid of into your work. And I think that uh, that can help differentiate it. You know, um, there's, there's so many voices out there. And whatever your unique truth is, getting that on paper, I think, will, will change your work in a substantive and powerful way. That's 
the most profound answer we've had yet. That's that's great. Thank you for that. Um, and to finish, my last question and my favourite question, the best question to ask somebody who works in our world, what truly scares you? Oh, um, anything uh, related to harm or loss related to my son, uh, now that I'm a father. Uh, I've got a nine-year-old son, and uh, you know the idea of being out in a forest uh, in, at night with only a flashlight, and there's trees in every direction, and I can barely see, and all I can hear is my son crying out for help, and I can never find him. You know, that would be, if someone was going to place me in a kind of existential hell, that would be that form of existence. Uh, so yeah, uh, the attachment of fatherhood has been a very real and terrifying deal for me. Uh, the, the love is so tremendous that the fear is also uh, commensurate in how tremendous it is. So yeah, any any harm uh, befalling my son or just that fear of not being able to help him is uh, what uh, wakes me up at 3 a.m. these days, you know? Well, I think that's an understandable fear. And I, you know, obviously, I hope you and your family are well in the the madness of 2020. All I can say, Jeremy, is thank you very much for your time. And thank you for talking scared with us. Great to be here. Thank you. So for someone who writes truly appalling violence, Jeremy is an alarmingly nice guy. Yeah, I mean, you can tell from his comments how much he cares about his family, his community and and the wider world. That theme of altruism and political justice really does kind of, you know, come to the fore in the loop. It it shines out like a diamond amongst the the viscera. But there is a lot of viscera, just be warned. The, The book was published by Simon & Schuster on the 29th of September which I believe was yesterday, if you're listening to this episode on the day of release, and I hope you are. It's a book that you can tell from our conversation, you know, riffs on a lot of pop culture references, particularly film. And we didn't really talk that much about literary influence, uh, but we did mention books that, you know, we love or that, you know, informed our reading as ageing men in the horror field. Quickly, let's talk about some of those books that we mentioned. Initially. Jeremy mentioned Survivor Song by Paul Tremblay. Obviously, episode one of this show, we talked to Paul about that novel. It's brilliant. For me, it's the horror book of 2020 because how do you sum up a pandemic like Paul does? How I, I, It's incredible how he nails exactly what we're all going through now. Okay, it's a more horrific version. You know, airborne rabies, but incredibly prescient. There's that word again that I keep using. Um, but the other books that that Jeremy mentioned actually kind of have a bit of a running theme. Like we, we both mentioned Stephen King's It, which, full disclosure, is my all-time favourite novel. You know, it's that pure piece of nostalgia for kind of the best summer that you ever had. And as much as it's a horror novel, it's, in fact, in many ways, it's the uber horror novel. And it, you know, it features a clown that eats children. That aside, I read it for the warmth and the beauty and the friendship and the bravery that, that kind of comes to the fore. It's, for me, an absolute masterpiece. And two other books that were mentioned, uh, Boy's Life by Robert McCammon and Summer of Night by Dan Simmons, both owe a massive debt to it. They both came out in 1991, five years after Stephen King's It, and they clearly owe a massive debt and are clearly written 
in the the wake of the success that it has because they're also about kids you know fighting evil in their small towns but they both have their own charm um, and they're both well worth a read i mean mccammon's boy's life in many ways is considered a classic in its own right so i would massively recommend you read all three of those the outsiders by se hinton isn't a horror novel but for many people it is the archetypical story of adolescence young manhood and you know the pitfalls of growing up i think that is at the bedrock of a lot of those later coming of age novels so i'm going to look it up because i should have read it by now um if anyone's read it let me know what you think and if you have any comments on anything we've discussed generally or even if you want to just give me some feedback on how you think the show is developing you, you can find me on twitter at talk scared pod or you can email me directly at talking scared pod at gmail.com I'd love to hear from you and do leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you can. It does help. So next week, I'm back with my first fellow Brit in the guest seat. Prepare for my accent to get thicker and the references to get that bit more opaque. But until then, fight the power, be kind and pass it on, get a tinfoil hat that fits and keep an eye on the goddamn octopuses, read good books and remember, guys, it's good to be scared.